0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We are concluding the Joseph cycle this morning. We are in the third third of each Torah portion. As we've said, we're in year three of a triennial reading. Um, And so uh, we are at the conclusion of not only the Joseph cycle, but we're at the conclusion of the book of Genesis. So uh, next week we begin the book of Exodus, uh, and we will be in the third third of every portion in the book of Exodus as well uh, until we finish the whole Torah, and then we'll be in the first third of every Parsha for next year. Um, And so uh, we're going to look at the The very end of our Parsha is the very end of the Joseph story is Jacob calling together his children, his twelve sons. Dina is not mentioned. We don't know what that means, um, but he calls together his twelve sons to give them a blessing, um the deathbed blessing, which we've seen many times in Torah. Sometimes a deathbed blessing is given and the guy doesn't die. So that happens. But the quote deathbed blessing, the intended deathbed blessing. Um, And that's what's happening this week. He gives a blessing to each of his 12 sons that are not exactly what we would consider blessings. Um, They're kind of mixed. Uh, and um, kind of speaking truth to his sons, which is not always so pleasant, right, to hear the truth about who we are in the world, uh, especially as are perceived by our parents. Um, and so he gives this bracha, and he gives the bracha to, he blesses Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Menashe, uh, and adopts them essentially as his own heirs. So uh, he adopts Joseph's children and becomes their Um, father, so that they inherit. So, of course, when you look at the 12 tribes of Israel, there isn't Joseph. When you look at a map of where the 12 tribes are settled, you have Ephraim and So, right? So this is reflecting a historical reality um, that Ephraim and Manasseh were two tribes that were part of the federation. They are attributed to Joseph as his sons. So not originally probably part of the federation that became early Israel. Be that as it may, we're going to skip the blessing uh, part uh, because to get through that is long and it takes a lot of unpacking to even understand what's going on there. I would rather get to the end of the story um, and talk a little bit there and then talk about the story um, from a couple of people's perspectives um, that I found um, interesting. So let's go to where we are going to start our reading this morning. So we come to the end of the brachot. So he blesses uh, all of his sons. We see here, uh, Benjamin is the last one to be blessed. He's the youngest. All these were the tribes of Israel, 12 in number. And this is what their fathers said to them as he bade them farewell, addressing to each a parting word appropriate to him. Then he instructed them, saying to them, I am about to be gathered to my kin, Bury me with my fathers in the cave, which is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. I think ancestors is more appropriate here than fathers. It's literally fathers, but it means ancestors. It means forefathers. So bury me, right, with my forefathers in the cave, which is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave, which is in the field of Machpelah facing Mamre in the land of Canaan, the field that Avraham bought from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There Avraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Yitzchak and his wife Rivkah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it bought from the Hittites. So it's really ours, mamash ours. It's really okay. It really belongs to us. It's really mine, 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 mine. When Jacob finished his instructions to his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathing his last, he was gathered to his people. All of these, of course, euphemisms for death yose aviv alav Shaklo. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. So again, this is the final time we see Joseph weeping and uh, kissing somebody. Um, and there was an interesting piece about um, all the looking at all the times Joseph weeps uh, in the story. It's a it's a lot for Torah. Torah doesn't talk about emotion. Torah doesn't care about emotion. That is not the agenda of these stories. And yet we see Joseph weeping with emotion. It's not like somebody cut off his left leg. Like that's not why he's crying. He's crying out of emotion every single time we see him cry. And so it's actually a lot for Torah to have somebody showing this much emotion and Torah caring to express these moments of emotion. So um, so it's an interesting thing if you want to look up Joseph weeping. Um, there's some interesting pieces about that. So he he weeps one more time, weeping over his father. I have to imagine weeping for everything that wasn't, everything that now can't be. Any of us who have lost a parent, I've lost both, like many of you. Um, there's just this incredible sadness that we're not really ever, I don't think, prepared for about everything that won't be now, um, that can't be now because they're gone. Um, not just what was, but what wasn't, uh, and, um, and for Joseph that, you know, I have to imagine, and I'm just going to throw it out to y'all. You, you can chew on it and tell me later what you think, but you know, it, he never reached out to his father all of those years in Egypt. He never sent a message home. He never sent a message saying, I'm here. I'm alive. I'm okay. How are you? How's the garden? Like nothing, And I have to believe that some of this weeping has to be Joseph, you know, acknowledging the fact that there was all this time that they could have been in contact and they weren't. Um, And that's, as far as we know, that's on Joseph. Jacob has no idea where Joseph is. Jacob can't reach out to Joseph. And Joseph knows that. He knows that his father can't possibly know he's the vizier of Egypt. (laughs) Right. So, um, it really was in Joseph's hands to, to send word to his father. He never did. It wasn't till his brother showed up on his doorstep that that whole reconciliation or reunion happens. Then Joseph ordered the physicians in his service to embalm his father, and the physicians embalmed Israel. So anyone who wants to say we've never, ever embalmed our dead, uh, you get to quote Torah now because you are all Torah scholars. You now get to say, well, not exactly, right? That is a later, there's a much later thing. Clearly we have Joseph treating his father with the respect, the kavod that would come um, with his position in Egypt. He was completely Egyptian that way. He wanted his father to have all of the rites and rituals that would have been um, dignified and dignifying the corpse and the memory of the deceased, according to the culture of Egypt, So he embalms his father. Now watch how long this is. I only realized this reading an article um, preparing for today. So they have to embalm him. That's a process, right? It required 40 days. For such is the full period of embalming. The Egyptians bewailed him 70 days. So 40 plus 70 is how much? Um, Seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. (laughs) That's a hundred and whatever, 10 days or something like that. So, um, okay. So so that happens, the embalming. Then comes the the Egyptian tradition of 70 days of mourning, public mourning. And when the wailing period was over, this 70 days, Joseph spoke to Pharaoh's court saying, do me this favor and lay this appeal before Pharaoh. My father made me swear, saying I'm about to die. Be sure to bury me in the grave, which I made ready for myself in the land of Canaan. That is true. We know this because we just read it. So the the author chooses to let us know that Joseph is telling the truth to Pharaoh, that his father did, in fact, ask him on his deathbed to take him to Canaan. And there's a reason I'm pointing that out. Now, therefore, let me go up and bury my father. Then I shall return. Um, Possibly Joseph thinks Pharaoh's worried that if he lets him go, Joseph's not going to come back, right, to run the business of Egypt. So Joseph is smart. Joseph is savvy. He says, I promise I'll return. And Pharaoh says, go and bury your father as he made you promise on oath. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all of the officials of Pharaoh, the senior members of his court, and all of Egypt's dignitaries, together with all of Joseph's household, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the region of Goshen. All right, this foreshadows what's going to happen when Moses asks for everyone to go. Do you remember? And Pharaoh says, fine, everyone can go except your children and your livestock. Remember? So here's proof that Joseph knows that. Joseph knows if we leave the children and the livestock, it's very clear we're coming back. These are shepherds. All right. So you're leaving your entire lot of used cars in Egypt and you're a used car dealer. Like that means you're coming back. And it's why Moses is going to insist, no, the kids and the flocks are coming with us. Um, But so think about how big that entourage is. That's a huge entourage. That's, you know, all of the dignitaries of the palace, all of Pharaoh's big people, and the whole retinue has to travel together. That is not a fast-moving group. So add that to the 40 days and the 70 days chariots too, and horsemen went up with them. It was a very large troop. When they came to Gorin Ha'atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they held there a very great and solemn lamentation, and he observed a mourning period of seven days for his father. So we're adding another week to that total of 70 plus 40, now plus seven. So 127 days total, um, There's a whole article written on Torah.com. Barry, if you want to look at it, uh, asking, what is this beyond the Jordan? That doesn't make any sense. You don't go from Egypt to Israel going across the Jordan to Transjordan. That makes no sense. They would have gone by the the King's Road, which was the trade route. They would have gone right from Egypt up through the Negev, right up to to the border with Canaan. Um, so it's interesting to try to figure out what's going on here. Ha on the other side of the Yarden. Um, okay. Uh, la, 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 la. So we're at 127 days. And when the Canaanite inhabitants of the land saw the morning at Goran Ha'atad, they said, this is a solemn morning on the part of the Egyptians. That it is why it was named Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. Again, why beyond the Jordan? You have to go study. Thus his sons did for him as he had instructed them. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, the field near Mamre, which Abraham had bought for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. All right. This is why I asked you to pay attention to how long that was. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, That was 127 days ago. They said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong that we did him? So they sent this message to Joseph. Before his death, your father left this instruction. So shall you say to Joseph, forgive, I urge you, the offense and guilt of your brothers who treated you so harshly. Therefore, please forgive the offense of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph was in tears as they spoke to him. Okay. Why did I point out that the author has us witness the promise that Jacob makes Joseph make? I think, and many authors agree, because we don't have any evidence for Jacob saying that in this case. The, the author could have told us, and Jacob said on his deathbed to the boys, "Right, forgive your brothers." I mean, to Joseph, "Forgive your brothers." We don't have it, so for most people reading this, what we understand is that the brothers made it up. The brothers are so afraid of Joseph taking vengeance that they lie; they make up an oath that it comes from Jacob. That that they are that that. that uh, That he is to forgive them for what they did. Now, note, they have not asked for forgiveness from Joseph anywhere. B, they have never admitted they did anything wrong. They've never said, we are so sorry what we did to you. Even in Judah's big, long speech, it was never, when he said, take me, it was never, we we, were, we did terrible things to you. We are so sorry. We have changed. He said, "Taking Benjamin will kill my father." They never say, "Forgive us." We were we you know whatever nothing. They've never owned what they did, and they don't even do that here. They put it in the mouth of Jacob, that Jacob says, "Forgive them for the wrongs they did you." They still don't acknowledge on their own that they've wronged joseph and joseph and i want to hear your take on this what's happening for joseph right now he's crying what's happening for joseph right now what kind of what kind of tears are these so think about that his brothers went to him themselves flung themselves before him and said we are prepared to be your slaves notice not we're sorry not we hate what we did Not it ate us up for years. Thank God you're okay. (laughs) We're prepared to be your slaves. But Joseph said to them, have no fear. Am I a substitute for God? Besides, we talked about this a little bit in meditation last week or the week before, whatever. Although you intended me harm, God intended it for good. So as to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. And so fear not, I will sustain you and your children Thus, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. So Joseph and his father's household remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph lived to see the children of the third generation of Ephraim, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were likewise born upon Joseph's knees. Remember, birthing on the knees is about adoption, right? So Joseph has adopted his great-grandchildren as his heirs so that there is no question about their status. At length, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. God will surely take notice of you and bring you up from this land to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham, to Yitzhak and to Yaakov. So Joseph made the sons of Israel swear saying, when God has taken notice of you, you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph died at the age of 110 years and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin In Egypt. And we say together, chazak, chazak, venit chazek. May we be strengthened to, uh, as we end this book of Torah, to begin another book of Torah together. Okay. So just a quick uh, reflection. Um, For me, this is like one of the saddest scenes in the Torah. Like this is truly, and one of the saddest scenes addressing human nature, right? That Joseph has taken care of all of them. He obviously forgave them. He knows what they did to him, even if they don't acknowledge it, even if they don't ask for forgiveness, he knows, and he's taken care of them. And the minute, you know, their father dies, okay, that's one thing. 127 days later, they freak out. So Jacob dies. Joseph goes through all of this morning stuff. It's, you know, What's what's 127 divided by three, right? So however many, four months, whatever, whoever that is, um, it's been three or four months, and they freak out and assume Joseph might take revenge. Um, and so for me, it's just the saddest statement about human nature that we just, even with evidence, can't sometimes get past our own crap enough to trust someone else's love and care and regard for us. Joseph got over it. We can, we can argue all we want with what Joseph did to the rest of Egypt. But vis-a-vis his family, he's a stand-up guy. He's done the right thing by his father and his brothers who don't deserve it. His brothers don't deserve it necessarily. And he does it. And they have no reason to doubt him. And of course, human nature being what it is, they, they can't accept his forgiveness Partly maybe because they haven't asked for it, but they they can't accept that he's over it and that he's taking care of them. And they panic and they lie. They go to him and they say, Daddy wanted to be sure that you know that he didn't want you to hurt us. Right. Even then they can't say, We're scared. Like we, you know, we kind of get it that you've forgiven us, but you know, we're a little nervous. Give us a reassurance. They can't do it. They're still so limited by the past and by their history and by their own. I don't know what they can't get past their own guilt. Um, And so their own self-assessment of who they are. So Joseph can't possibly care for them because they don't really, I don't know. Like there's just so much there. um, That it's really sad to me. And I can't help but think even, Thousands of years ago, when this story originates and is told, and then is written down, it's written down with this being the final scene. I don't think there's any editor who leaves this as the final scene going, reconciliation, it's awesome, try it, right? I, I don't believe that. I believe anyone who leaves this in as the last scene, or writes it as the last scene, knows how sad this is and what a statement this is about who pe- who we are who families are who um who we are in terms of being people who can accept or not accept um love and um forgiveness and um being seen and cared for in our entirety and for who we really are um not not just who we we know we can be loved for our projection. And most of us trust that, I believe, right? Like, I, I can definitely be loved for my projection. <laughs> that, that is not a problem. Um, I'm very good at it. That's how we survive, right, certain childhoods, right? We become very good at projecting. It's can I be loved and accept love truly for who I am when I know I'm showing who I really am. And that, that is the work for some of us of a lifetime. Okay, so, no hands so far. (laughs) Lee's like, yeah, because you just dumped a whole load of crap on us. Thank you very much. Um, All right, Lynn, Lynn, you want to speak? Go ahead. I do. Okay. So I have a question. I don't know
0: how long all of the Israelites were residing in Egypt before Joseph died and before
1: a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. And I'm assuming within that time, the famine ended and they never thought about going back to Canaan and was their life so good in Egypt, they just thought, Hey, this is great. We'll just hang out here. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, so Going off of last night's study, those of us who met for class last night about um, um, Judaism and the psychology and the Jewish tradition or whatever the heck I called it, um, we talked about the myth of Egypt. And what comes to me is something that we studied in Estelle Frankel's book, Sacred Therapy. And she says the real exile in Egypt was that they became accustomed to it. Right. So... to I have a much longer answer to your question, but like the kind of the the shorter answer is we don't know how long it is between Joseph's death and the arising of a new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. We don't know that. We know Jacob lived there 17 years. So Jacob was there 17 years. I'm not sure exactly. The rabbis, I'm sure, have figured it out, like how much longer Joseph lives. So figure it's another 20, 30, you know, whatever, like a generation. And then... And then we don't know. But w- what we know is that um, they stay and they become enculturated. Is it a is it a slow slide right into slavery? Or is it there a Rosa Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph and they're getting too many for us? So let's oppress them. and it, and, it, and it comes a little more quickly. I think most of our tradition would say it doesn't really matter. It's that. Part of the danger, part of the, the the narrative, is don't think. And same with the Purim narrative, don't think just because you're somewhere else and have it good that you're safe. You're not. If you're outside of your territory where you are sovereign, you are always at risk. Right. Um, this is. Th- these are tales that are being put together in this collection in order to sell this federation of tribes on the idea of being one nation. So part of it, I guess I'm trying to say, I think is a warning. If we don't confederate, if we don't come together under one King and be a unified nation, we are always going to be in danger of being invaded, of being taken over, right. Of all of that. So, um, so that's Bikitsur. All right. So, so a lot of people play on this idea of 17 years in Egypt, which is interesting. I don't think I ever really paid much attention to that before. So let's look at um, Menachem Creditor, who says, years from now, when we look back at this moment of pandemic, what will we have learned from this? How will we help the world be better from this? How will we achieve a better version of ourselves, having learned these hard lessons? Jacob lived for 147 years, 17 of them in Egypt. If you think about all the places he's been and things he's done and what's happened to him, he has been Jacob and Israel. He's wrestled with people and God his whole life. And here are 17 years reunited with his family, seeing that his children have learned how to rebuild from brokenness. We will not remember this lesson forever. We will always need reminders but we should work hard to tell our stories in a way that grapples honestly with our journeys so that our descendants will look back and know that their ancestors learned and tried harder so that they can too. Let us be good ancestors for our descendants. What I find interesting is Menachem creditor is finding 17 years in Egypt to be the blessing of Jacob's life, right? When he's talking about pandemic, he's, and struggle he's not talking about seventeen years in exile in Egypt, right He's talking about everything else Jacob did as being the struggle. The seventeen years at the end is the time that he sees his his children and his grandchildren, and they're all living together, and they're doing well, and he's reunited with his long lost son, the son of his beloved Rachel, and like that this is the good stuff is these seventeen years. Uh, in Egypt. And that, um, you know, that we, that he rests in knowing every, he's, yeah, he's had a hard life. And he says that in Torah. Um, When Pharaoh asks him, how old are you? Betsy Rosenthal, don't let me forget to come back to the topic of translation, please. Um, When Pharaoh says, how old are you? Jacob says, like, these are the numbers of my years and they've been tough. They've been really hard. My life has been super hard. That's what he answers Pharaoh, And um, he doesn't have to answer that. He could have said, thank you for asking. I'm great. Thanks. Loving the apartment. Thank you. You know, but he doesn't. He says, my life has been really, really hard. And so the 17 years are actually, you know, according to Menachem creditor here, is Joseph's, uh, Jacob's golden years. And he's living the good life in Florida and enjoying seeing his children and grandchildren around him and even you know, um, getting along. So, um, so hold on to that and, and look at In opposition to that is the traditional reading of those 17 years. Uh, and this is a wonderful piece by, uh, Dr. Erin Lieb-Smokler. Um, she's the one I quoted in my high holiday sermon. Um, the breakage is where we begin, she's, she's now quoting the poet, um, uh, Amanda Gorman. Remember that fantastic young Poetess, yeah, who wrote the inaugural poem. She quotes her here. The breakage is where we begin. The rupture is for remembering. That is to say, here is where we hold our hurt. We inaugurate our dreams at the injury. We consecrate at the cut. Under a suture of sun, we sense ourselves stir, slowly, sweetly, as if for the first time, This nearly tore us apart. Yes, indeed. It tears us to start. Um, And Rabbi Smokler uses that as a jump off to talk about Jacob and to talk about his life. Uh, And so um, looking at the end of Jacob's life, um, during that precious time of 17 years in Egypt, 17 years of family reunification, 17 years of roots and growth, something surprising happened. It seems that Jacob learned how to actually live. The beginning of our parsha, the first word is vayechi. He lived in Egypt 17 years. And so all the commentators pick up on lichyot, this this idea of this is the infinitive form of the verb to live. He learned lichyot. He learned davka in Egypt to live. Commentators point out the unique use of the word vayechi, here and see within it a swell of life of Chaim that overtook those many years that sapped life. So then she, uh, she quotes some of the uh, tradition and then she goes to the this by This is a weekly commentary through the uh, Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Rabbi Smokler is the teacher for IJS this year. I sign up every year for their text study. You've you've gotten a lot of stuff from them, whether you know it or not. Um, and so this is the Fadimit on, uh, on this, this time. My master, my grandfather, my teacher, my rabbi, a blessed memory. He's, this is the, the spot I met that Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger is quoting his grandfather. On account of truthfulness, one can live even in the land of Egypt. So that's important that he lives differently in the land of Egypt is remarkable. The commentators take something from that because Egypt is exile. Egypt is down there. Egypt is corruption. Egypt is oppression. So so why this special word about learning to live in Egypt? Because Dafka he lived in Egypt in that terrible, terrible place. It seems that the essence of this specific edition of the word lived is the aspect of life that was possible for Jacob, even in the land of Egypt. The meaning of life is cleaving to the root and source from which one always draws chiyut, vitality. Again, chai, that word chai, life. So it says in the Holy Zohar on the portion, no, don't worry about that. All right. It says in the Midrash, we are strangers that the creation of the human being in this world was not to cleave to this world alone, God forbid, but rather through cleaving to the essence of vitality, khiyut, this world will be drawn toward the divine. The word ger, um, stranger, is related to maale gerah. You have to love the wordplay of these rabbis. It is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. Ger, stranger, is related to ma'ale geirah, which means to bring up the cud and chew it again and swallow, right? So ma'ale, to bring up geirah, the cud. So the play on the word ger, geirah, it is not related. Those words are not related. But the Svada Met has a beautiful spiritual teaching here. To be a stranger, ger, what does that have to do with? Ma'ale geirah, bringing up the cud by love, to chew it again. A person who is called a ger is also one who brings up, who elevates her or himself. The ger finds a point of holiness that was lodged among the nations and brings it to the Jewish people. This also relates to the exile in Egypt, about which it is said, for your children will be strangers. Um, For the meaning of this was to extract the points of holiness that were lodged in Egypt. So this idea of gay of being a gear is that just like an animal brings up its cud to chew it again, to get all the nourishment out of it. That's what a gear does. A gear comes from the people of the world and lifts up something that they bring to the Jewish people. This is true. We know this. We all know this who know gay and gay who to join us. They always bring with them, right? Something that lifts up the Jewish people. So they lift themselves up. They lift up the Jewish people by lifting up something. I love this play on Gare and gerah, Maale gerah, Um, bringing it up to nourish us. And, to, and that's why we're in Egypt. We had to be in Egypt. Jacob had to be in Egypt for certain things to be lifted up that you could only have being a gear in Egypt, it was a necessary experience, both for Jacob and for the people of Israel, to be gerim. The source of Jacob's pain and his gerut, the spot emet, roots his redemption and ours there too, but he does so by reframing the core meaning of gerut altogether, shifting it away from alienation, which one would think is what's going on 17 years in Egypt as a foreigner, um, Rather than it being about alienation, it's toward holy integration. To him, to the Sfatimet, the Gair, alternately translated as sojourner, stranger, convert, is not the quintessential outsider, but is rather the paradigm of the learned insider. She or he is one who ruminates, literally, ruminates and elevates, who traverses boundaries to bolster the strength of the foundations who seeks to fully live in this world in order to uncover its holy relation to the next, right? So just as Egypt represents a going down, right? Or or being born into the people of the world and not into the Jewish people, so is this world as compared to the next world for, for our spiritual teachers, right? This earthly material realm, right? As it relates to the spiritual realm, the spiritual world, this is the khayyub, the lifefulness that Jacob found in Egypt, inextricably attached to the source of his being. He consciously became a ger, a stranger in a strange land, and rendered it strange no more. Egypt, too, could be a place for God and for ultimate redemption. And so he got to work revealing just that, drawing out tastes of the world to come in and through his saturation in the here and now. Instead of alienating him from life, this self-conscious Gerut became the tool he needed to finally learn how to truly live. Lichyot, As the book of Genesis ends and we head towards the book of Exodus, talking about captivity, right? The curse which brought us the, there, Echa, for your seed will be a stranger, also endowed us with a spiritual charge in perpetuity. To learn how to be gerim, strangers, converts, so that we too might learn to live with awareness and sacred vitality wherever we might find ourselves, even in Egypt, Mitzrayim, even in narrow places, meitzarim. I'm going to stop after this, I promise. As 2021 winds down, she says, I wonder how I might learn to live lichiot again. After a year that saw insurrection and contested election, variants in vaccines, breakthrough infections and breakthrough discoveries, loss of life, loss of stability, climate anxiety, and so much more, it is hard to maalegera, right, to bring up the cud, to elevate the strangeness of it all. But Jacob offers a way back. Cleave to truth cleave to intimations of the sublime in the midst of the disorienting mess. Find the Nikudot Kedushot, the points of holiness within and without, and amplify them. Lift them up so that they may lift us up too. This nearly tore us apart. Yes, indeed. It tears us to start. Okay, Bob.
0: Yeah, I was just... (laughs) I was just thinking of the um the beginning of, of this um this tale. If uh and, and I I certainly would accept the comments of any psychologists like Rich that we have in the um in the group. But imagine how Jacob must have been first when he first found out that it's time you know, it's okay to go down to Egypt because Joseph is down there, is a big deal. You know, Jacob's first response is, you morons. Why did you do what you did to my favorite kid? Um, Then you look at the brothers confronting Jacob and not being able to, confronting uh, Joseph and not being able to say, I'm sorry. Well, when you have a special kid who lords it over you, The last thing you can say is, I'm sorry. You might say, your father wanted us to say, I'm sorry. But it must have stuck in their crop as they were bringing up the cud. They must have stuck in their crop to be able to say to Jacob, we messed up. You're a special. You you really are a special guy. And you're much better than we are. Um, So they go a long way from that mental state, to the mental state of honoring Joseph, Joseph to the state of I can breathe easier, etc. So it's a it's a big, long trek. that takes a long time to be able to get them from where they were to where they are.
1: Um, Yeah, I'm just not sure where they are. Like we feel like You know, they've trekked a long way. And then it's like, you read this last scene and it's like, have they really come anywhere? They're still covering their tails, right? It's all CYA, all of it still at the end, right? Like, it's so disappointing and it's so human, right? That, you know, maybe it's not. It's a long trek that kind of snakes back around, you know, on itself that, you know, they make some progress and then they go back. And then they make progress and then they, you know, come back. And then isn't that the, the journey for all of us, right? Torah's replete with stories of b- being a circuitous kind of twisted path, not a direct linear, you know, way forward, if you will. Look how many times the Israelites complain and get smacked in the head. And complain and get smacked in the head, and right, you know, and trust, and then they get complained. Wait, right, so I mean, I think it's human nature. And so, yeah, they may have come a long way. And yet, have have they?
2: Right.
1: So is the fo- We have to ask all the time, right? Have I really come all that far? Because here's that trigger again. Is here's the, that thing again. So, so if that's the
0: case, is what happened after 400 years, you know, God's payback. Uh, uh, you know, you guys, you know, really... Again, we're morons. Um, uh, you know, it, it's time for you to understand what you really did.
1: Yeah. And when, and I remind me, I want to end with Peter Pizzola because he 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 kind of comes to this like, what, what's the point here? And, and it's a really important point, Bob. So make sure I come back to Peter Pizzola. Um, Lisa. Just sort of ruminate, ruminating about this this concept of gear. I'm not going to ever hear that word the same way for a while, right? <laughs> I'm ruminating. Right. Uh, I mean, it's sort of making the case that ju- the Jews as a people or as individuals kind of realize our highest purpose in the world by living as learned insiders in a foreign place. Um, which makes Israel or Canaan kind of not that important to who we are or to making us realize our deepest selves or our greatest talents. That's, that's kind of a contradictory message there. Well, I think for this for the spiritual tradition of the Jewish people, it's like, what do we do with the fact that we're in perpetual exile? Yeah. Right? yeah. What, what do we do with that? And so this Fadimet and other brilliant teachers choose To find indications like this one verse in Torah that he completely turns on its head and reads stuff into it that is not there, but is there (laughs) for us now forever, right? That's the job of of a good spiritual teacher is to take stuff and and unpack it in a way that there's stuff there that wasn't there, but it is there because now it's there for us. Um, But anyway... Um, what he's saying, right, is the Jews are in perpetual exile. We can either see ourselves as strangers, and we're never going to fit, and we're always going to be in danger, or we can see exile as a certain kind of experience and wisdom that only the Jews can bring to the world. Just as Mm -hmm. Gareem bring it to us, right, just as people born outside of the Jewish people, raised outside of the Jewish people bring it to us, we bring it to the world. And And have to do it all the time ourselves. And and it's about, I would say, extending it, humanity, right? Having to figure out how to be strangers, meaning material animals on earth, and and lift that up to bring this material experience towards holiness, towards, right? Towards, right. And so that, and that's where he goes. Right. That's what he, that's what he says, that, that w- the work is to is to do what Yaakov did. And even in Egypt, to bring it toward to lift things up, to bring it towards holiness. And that's what we do in this world um, vis-a-vis the spiritual world, the invisible world, the world of the Kaddish Baruch Hu, the Holy One, Blessed Be God. Mm, sort of complicated- beautiful teaching because you take your situation and you, you can spin it one of two ways right and his job is to spin it in such a way that it gives the jewish people strength and courage and hope and and a special mission and i think that's so incredibly brave um uh, you know of our teachers to to take what was a pretty crappy reality in in many cases and to make it instead a charge like this is yeah, our- but then yeah but then you end up with moses at the end of that story when you have to leave because it becomes intolerable to stay. No, absolutely. And all of us should leave the places that are actually constricting. Mm-hmm. Right? But we have to have that experience. Right? That That's an important experience, I think, is what the Svarimet is saying. And we learn, lichyot to live in a certain way. Then we can leave. But we have to learn, lichyot how to live. Yeah. Then we can leave. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Okay, David? I'm just sort of curious
0: because... Somewhere in the last passages in Torah, Joseph acknowledged God, and yet, where did that come from? Joseph
1: acknowledged God standing before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, "I heard you a great dream interpreter," and Joseph says, "It's not me. God interprets." Yeah, but
0: didn't God? How did God enter Joseph's life after having worked for Pharaoh
1: and adopted all of? Joseph talks about God before he works for Pharaoh. He's already got that relationship. How that happens, we're not told. Isn't but,
0: it interesting, though, that he spent his time working for Pharaoh in a completely different culture. And then at the end of it, God reemerges in his
1: Joseph. God family. never left for Joseph. Yeah. Wow. Joseph understood God putting him in this position so that he could save Egypt wow. and his family. And he figures that out somewhere between being sold into slavery and standing before Pharaoh, right? He, in the dungeon, in the pit, in the prison, that's where Joseph starts to really understand his, that, that what's happening for him as talent is God. And that this is, you know, this is and he he develops a relationship with that and stands before the King of Egypt and says, is the one that interprets. I just speak. Yeah. And so he's he's solid in that and stays solid in that. And this so, is why the rabbis call him Yosef at Tzaddik, Joseph the righteous, you know, that he he stands by that relationship, even working for Pharaoh, who all of Egypt believes is a god.
0: So as we leave Genesis, our conclusion is Joseph really was always a good guy and is a good guy at the end.
1: I didn't say good, I said he has a clear relationship with Yodhe Bafay. Why, it, it Doesn't mean he's good. It means he believes he's living in line with what God wants from him. Like last week, you know, I'm not so sure what I think about Joseph after last week. But you know, but he believes he's doing the divine will. I know a lot of people who do a lot of terrible things who believe they're doing the divine will, including Abraham that we you so eloquently talked about, David. Right? So right. Anyway, so you know, is doing the divine will always? You know, does that make you a good person? I think it depends on what you think the divine will is. I'm um, Melinda.
2: I might be projecting an interpretation of a moral tale that I want to be in this story. Um, that might or might That's not. That's what be we
1: there. all do. That's what Spada <laughs> Met's doing. Cool,
2: cool. But I, the the parallel talking about the Joseph story and 400 years later the Moses story, and that when they went to bury Jacob. They left the children and the livestock. And I am also still not over the crimes against humanity that we found out last week, Joseph perpetrated against the Egyptian people and that he made sure his family had theirs and a lot of other people continued to suffer. And that suffering lasted for hundreds of years until Moses arrived and said, no, the only way we get free is we all get free together. And if we are only protecting our own closely held, those family dynamics are still ultimately going to rupture and be fraught and um, and pained and full of betrayal and lies. And we will continue to be enslaved until we recognize that none of us are free, until all of us are free.
1: Beautiful. Beautiful. And remember, Emma-Linda, if you look closely at the text... It was a mixed multitude that went up out of Egypt. It does not say the Jewish people. It does not say the descendants Mm -hmm. of Israel. It says Erev Rav, a mixed multitude, meaning everyone who wants out, come with us. You are welcome. Whoever's got the courage to leave and believe that it's possible for something, another reality to exist, come with us. You become the people Israel. That's who stood at Sinai. Whoever had the courage and the imagination to leave and to believe in something else being possible as articulated by Moses and this business, anyone who's in, put blood on the door and come with us. And that's who stood at Sinai. That's who becomes the Jewish people, not just the descendants of Israel. So I think you're absolutely right that that is profoundly a message that is here. Judy, Judith. In relation to what we discussed last night as well, I'm seeing this story of Joseph and Jacob and all the family, all the Egyptian hierarchy and so forth, as going through this narrow place. And it makes me see that one of the points here is that we all go through our narrow places and have a choice of how we come out of that narrow place, I think this is a beautiful story about redemption and about non-redemption and yet surviving by willingness to open up and go through a narrow place. Amen. Amen. For sure. Again, like we talked about yesterday. Like I yes. such a beautiful like dovetail. Um and for those of you who want, I'll uh have maybe ask Bert if you'll send a Torah study the, the piece that we studied yesterday. Um, so I want to get to, uh, something that, um, Betsy and I were talking about outside the sanctuary, Betsy Rosenthal, um, who's here. Um, we were talking about translation and, um, she knows Hebrew and, uh, her son who was, um, who was observant, but pointed out, um, that, you know, that when Pharaoh asks Jacob, how old he is actually in the text, it says, what are the days of your years but the translation says, how old are you? And so we were talking a little bit about, so is that an incorrect translation? Which translation are we using? So what I can answer is we are using Safaria's translation, which is the JPS translation. So the Jewish Publication Society, this is their English translation of Torah. If you hang out with me long enough and this group long enough, you will hear me challenge translations often because they miss something that only the Hebrew lifts up. Translators have to make a decision always about, are we getting at the heart of the meaning of the words, or do we translate the words literally? And anytime anyone translates anything into another language, you have to make that decision. So what if it had said in the JPS translation, Pharaoh said to Jacob, what are the day, the number of the days of your years? Like, is that any more helpful than how old are you? Generally speaking, for the understanding of the text, no. Now, having said that, when you look at the Hebrew, which I'm sure is why your son was pointing it out, because the rabbis look at the Hebrew and do exactly what we just saw. Ger has nothing to do with maale gerah, right? Ger, stranger, has nothing to do with cud, nothing. They have no etymological connection. That doesn't mean that there isn't meaning to be had from looking at the actual Hebrew and mistranslating, right? Like taking the literal translation and saying, we're going to unpack that to mean something entirely different. So sometimes you can only look at the Hebrew to get there, right, to some beautiful interpretation. And sometimes the Hebrew is just an idiomatic expression that we need to just render as how old are you? So both are true, right? There's better and worse translations about understanding the actual meaning of the text, which is how old are you, versus... Looking at what is it? Why does it say the number of the days and your years? Because each day is meaningful, blah, 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 blah. That's a spiritual interpretation that you can only get at by looking at the actual literal Hebrew. Right. So so both are true. Um, right. That. So that's why it's helpful to know Hebrew when you're studying the Torah, because you can catch. That it's a weird way to say, how old are you? And like, what do you want to do with that? So sometimes the spiritual teachers want to bust that wide open and say, well, because every day is meaningful. It's not just a collection of how old we are or how many years we've lived. It's about living every day, yada, yada, yada. That's beautiful. But when you're really looking at what does it mean, right? Right it's how old are you? Did, did, did that make any sense, Betsy, or did I just confuse yeah, it? No, absolutely. But I, I like the interpretation of reading in Hebrew, as you may, the days of what are the days of the years of your life? Because I like the interpretation that it's really um,
2: Pharaoh is asking Jacob, how meaningful have your days been or how meaningful has your life been as opposed to how old are you? So, I mean, I, I, found that interpretation kind of intriguing and and that appears in the commentary but in the book that you're using and I'm using it doesn't have that
1: right because that's not the translation the right. translation is how old are you right it's an idiomatic expression right so yeah but you don't get you don't get what the tradition does with that unless you can look at the original hebrew right, right? so i hear what you're saying but that's why we, we want people to know Hebrew more. And that's why we study commentary, right? Because then the commentary says, actually, it doesn't say how old are you. It says, what are the days of your years, right? And so that's why, and that's why we study with teachers, right? Yes. Your son didn't make that up. He didn't see that on his own, just knowing the Hebrew. He studied, he studied the commentary. Right. He studied right. our teachers who took that and twisted it to mean this beautiful other thing. It's beautiful. Right. But, but it's not a, but, the, but rendering the translation more accurately doesn't always mean a better translation. If that makes any sense. Yeah. I okay. get that. Okay. So I want to just um, close with, Oh, I know I'm keeping you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I can't help it. Okay. Um, so I just want to c- close with some of this from Peter Pitzela. This is amazing to me for the me, the, the remainder of the Joseph story is a denouement a matter of gathering up many loose ends and settling his family in Egypt, receiving the blessing of his father and then burying him in Canaan and Machpelah. Just after Jacob dies, the brothers fearing again that Joseph will avenge himself uh, on them lie to him, telling him that it has been their father's dying wish that he forgive them. It is clear that the brothers will stand in awe of Joseph's powers and still live in the shadow of their own guilt. Joseph weeps, right? And and says what, what we saw him say. Um, the tears of cathartic reconciliation do not wash away the old paranoia. It runs so deep in men. Everything that happens in this long finale flows within the awareness Joseph has achieved of his being an actor in a divine play. The theatrical metaphor is all but explicit in his words about plots. It is a literary as well as a providential metaphor. Joseph's story is now complete. On his own deathbed, Joseph speaks to them once more. I am dying, but God will take account of you. He will bring you up from this land to the land which he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, asking them only to bring his bones with them into that land when they leave Egypt and then he dies. The task is always the same, says Peter Pitsula about these myths, to find our brothers and live with them in peace. At the bedside of Joseph, the twelve stand, comforted by his words, for he had, quote, spoken to their hearts. Genesis recognizes brotherhood as the evolutionary edge of manhood, and so it has always been. Where men have failed to push this edge, cultures and civilizations have been destroyed and lost forever." Men slaughter their brothers unless they are held by a higher purpose. Surely the poet recognizes this. That is why he says, I'd gladly spend years getting word of him, even third or fourth hand. No Joseph, no vital cultural idea like him, no survival, simple as that. Unless we achieve brotherhood, we will, in the end, destroy ourselves and all human life. This is the terrible forecast of the myth of the murdered brother. It is the option of Cain. The final project of Genesis is to construct and ennoble the idea of brotherhood so that men can imagine and then can choose a life in peace with one another. One of the best articulations I've ever heard of how someone understands the myth these myths of the patriarchy um, and what they're trying to communicate. And Pitsula really understands that in the context of human culture and human history and that these tales are coming to say, unless men can live, learn to live together as brothers, united by a higher purpose, whatever that purpose is, then they're gonna to continue to slaughter each other and they're gonna to continue to kill each other. And that's what's always happened. And that's what will continue to happen. Civilizations will be destroyed as they always have. Unless men learn to live together as brothers. And I think that's a a really profound teaching from a man studying these stories about men written by men for men. Right. And we've looked at it from, you know, the matriarchal side and that lost tradition, but it's just as important to look at it, you know, as the message that men are writing and communicating to men about men. Um, and, and the profound teachings there. Um, and so anyway, that I can't recommend, um, the, the book, uh, highly enough, Our Father's Wells.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah study from Kahil at Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.